The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the stocks discussed. For a full list of current recommendations and stocks owned by staff, members of Intelligent Investor can visit www.intelligentinvestor.com.au. Welcome to Stock Take. My name is Gaurav Sodi. Joining me today is analyst James Carlo. Welcome, James. Good morning. <laughs> and with us also um, is analyst Mickey Mordek. Good day, Mickey. Good day, Gaurav. Hi, James. So, gentlemen, how are we traveling? Um, James, do you have any of the latest on the epidemic? I, I do keep hearing that the American experience is getting worse. They're actually lifting shutdowns before the case numbers are starting to decline, and that could accelerate things and make them even worse in, in many states. But we seem to be traveling pretty well over here. Yeah, we do. Fingers crossed, really. Um, uh, case numbers very low. Um, yeah, I mean, not much to say, I'm afraid. Uh, it does Just, look pretty pretty ugly in America. So particularly, I mean, I think it's very patchy over there. And um, yeah. You know, look, I think they don't have much appetite for locking down and, you know, that's going to um, maybe get their economy back a bit sooner than otherwise. But um, but it's also going to, you know, obviously there are, <laughs> there's the implication of people dying. So hmm. I must say I'm a bit more concerned about America and I think I've made a deserted effort to domesticate my um, my own portfolio a little bit more than I ordinarily would. And I've just been a bit more cautious on businesses with big American exposure. Um, but, you know, I, I, that's really me being overly cautious and I'm not sure. But is that a response to the virus or, or other yes, things that are is. going on over there? No, look, it's really a response to, to the virus. I'm not convinced that they've handled this particularly well. Um, and well, they've certainly not handled it well, but but, but I mean that may, that may get get them through. I mean, you know, economically speaking, that may get them through sooner rather than later. Perhaps even if they don't have shutdowns, I think people's um, fear of getting sick mean that if you have lots of infections and lots of deaths um, all over the country, people will naturally change their behaviours and that will impact the economy, even if the government doesn't have shutdowns and lockdowns. So yeah, I'm just a little bit yeah. cautious about it. Yeah, I think, Mickey, but but I think not as much as as a, as a as an actual lockdown. But anyway, yeah, so. no, I'm, I'm sure that's the case. Yeah, agreed. Um, Mickey, um, are you how are you feeling about all this? You you worried? You feeling optimistic? Share market is on a bit of a <laughs> bit of a rise. Well, don't know if you've noticed. Oh yeah, no, I no, I definitely have. Uh, it's been it's been great. Uh, so, um, <laughs> but uh, I think. I think it's just that the risk has now become normalized uh, and it's just, um, you know, that panic fear factor is probably not where it was. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it was this big unknown at the, at the start. We had no idea how it would unfold and now, you know, the future just looks a little bit clearer, uh, but certainly still risks uh, for sure. And we don't know what the ultimate toll will be, but it just seems like the market has, has kind of normalized the situation uh and 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 it's probably i mean also a lot of the companies as well you know particularly in the us you have quite international exposure and uh you know the big tech businesses probably won't be as affected but and mm. probably have disproportionate effects on smaller businesses and so uh it's yeah, amazing me how much yeah. how, how much life is just normalized you go outside and um you know 
everything is full, filled up filled with people um the my, my local train stations parking is chock-a-block all day every day uh, malls are filled uh, there's traffic everywhere i'm surprised uh you know you, you could almost get away with not even realizing there's still a pandemic about but, uh, there's, but there isn't Australia. there isn't yeah Australia. well in australia there isn't i mean right. i mean yeah. you know that, that's the thing. <laughs> i mean look okay you could i mean definitions i mean there's obviously the risk of one but at the moment yep um the cases are very very low um, and yet we're still and, what twenty uh, percent down off our February highs <clears throat> here in Australia. Is that right? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I think that's about right. Uh, so yeah, look, I'm yeah. So it sounds like we're all feeling reasonably comfortable. Well, I'm, I think we're, I'm we're, we're, about the US. we're gambling. There, it's important to remember that we're essentially gambling on on a vaccine still because you yeah. know we can't keep the border locked down forever. Um, so you know, in the absence of a vaccine, at some point you've got to open up. I suppose you, if you open up after it's sort of dying down in the rest of the world, you'll you'll be in a better position. But um, you know, let, let let's hope we get a vaccine sooner rather than later because it's going to be it's, it has big implications for the economy if you don't let people in or out. There's I've a lot heard of really, uh, yeah, really mixed things about you know the the probability of a vaccine, and it's just, yeah, there's so much conflicting mm. information. It's hard to know whether we'll get mm. one, but um, yeah, it seems it seems like seems like we'll probably get some sort of solution. It's just the time timeline around that. But yeah. It's a real test of our species. I mean, think about all the resources um, that are being thrown into a vaccine. I think there are 150 active trials happening at the moment. Every research lab in the world is working on this. Every government resource is being thrown at this. They're simultaneously researching and building manufacturing capacity, even for vaccines that haven't been proven yet. I find it hard to imagine that we won't get a vaccine and get one very quickly. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, every problem that we've ever, as a species, tried to solve, we've tended to solve, um, given enough resources. Oh. And there's unlimited resources. <laughs> into this. we haven't solved yet. But... What haven't we solved, James? We've solved every problem. Oh, the meaning of life. I mean, uh, <laughs> Don't you, you know? know I'll tell you that after the podcast. <laughs> Flying cars. I mean, look, you know, there's a bunch of things. I mean, it's, yeah, there's know, a couple we, of problems solved that all the not to be solved. solved. There's, there's a whole bunch of things we haven't even thought about solving. You know, so. well, for flying car. The problem there is transportation, right? And I think we've we're solving transportation. Flying cars isn't is a gimmick that you know oh, may or may not ever but, happen. But, but I mean, high speed rail. I mean, look, there's a million things. But yeah. but you see, it's it, it's a it's a question of imagination rather than ability. But anyway, we're getting off the topic. I mean. Uh, fingers crossed we get a vaccine because if we don't, then, uh, you know, at some point we're going to have to, um, you know, uh, let some people in. The, the other interesting thing, I guess, about it all is just how many, uh, you know, retail investors have been flooding into the market and how short term, you know, I think, I think a lot of the market's mentality is right now, you know, you're seeing mm. a lot of these stocks like uh you know not to say anything we don't have a particular view on them but for example kogan and you know zuno and these stocks that maybe will benefit from you know in increased uh you know traffic in the short term uh so and it seems like everyone's kind of flooding into those stocks uh you know thinking um and 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 away from the stocks that are going to be hurt in the in the short short term so it just seems like it shortened everyone's time horizons a lot and mm. uh, i guess that's an interesting part yeah of it. i don't i don't i don't know about that i mean i think that the people flooding into kogan's Kogan done brilliantly the last month or two hasn't it i mean and and that's you know so that may seem short term but it but it may you know the argument is that it's high, you know increased accelerated 
uh, everyone's shift towards online retail and that Kogan could be a major long-term beneficiary of that. Um, so I'm not sure that's... Well, I'd, I mean, I was the... just taking taking Kogan for example, but I mean, the yeah. stock that stock, for example, is up. It's tripled. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, it's hard, hard to see the justification for that. I grant you that. Now, I know what you're saying. There's, there's a lot of... It, it's a difficult market to read because professional investors um, are very cautious. There's a lot of money on the sidelines. I think there was a... Um, a fund manager survey released recently, and I think 85% of fundees were negative on the market, and most of them had higher than average levels of cash. But the retail side is roaring ahead, and I've seen unbridled enthusiasm, which usually really scares me when you see lots of inexperienced um, investors uh, making a lot of money very quickly. That's not a good sign. So you've got two very different indicators here that point to different outcomes and i really don't know which way to, to, to go um so it's it's a it's a difficult market to read for for me because yeah i'm not really sure how to how to take this but i still think company valuations look reasonable across the board there are a couple of crazy examples and i think kogan is actually one of them um all these high growth stocks pretty manic to me and i don't have much money invested in them i think you can see from our uh, by um, even our recommended list that there's not a lot of it's not really where we're focusing on at the moment because it looks kind of crazy where we have been focusing on gents is uh, we published finally published um, United Malt Group which is one of those old boring industrials that no one ever thinks about or even knows existed until um, we started looking at it um, James did you know that it takes 140 grams of malt to make one liter of beer. Well, I did, but only as oh, a result you? of reading your article. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> no, these, uh, no, I didn't know. Um, and and uh, yeah, I mean that's a lot. That's a lot of malt. I mean, uh, and it raises the question: Is it a bit like cement, where you've really got to make it near um, where it's needed? Um, is that is yeah, that I, the point? Because they they have production in in the US as well, do they? Is that also the U? They don't export. You don't export malt from here to the US, do you? Or do? You? No, you, you don't export malt from here to the US. But what you need to do, you can export malt, and there's a pretty rigorous export market. Um, we actually export to Asia from Australia um, quite a bit, and I think a lot of Asian brewers use Australian um, malt as a key ingredient. But um, I think the key restraint is getting access to the raw material and then processing it and getting that processed stuff onto um, some sort of logistics chain. Because you, moving around a low-value material, and I think you're right to point out the, um, the similarities between this and something like uh, cement and also things like iron ore or alumina, those things, they're relatively abundant and they're relatively cheap. Um, so they're low cost, but they cost a lot of money to move around. And that's the same thing with malt. It doesn't actually cost that money, that much money to produce, but to move this stuff around and to get it in volume from where it is made to where it needs to be is a tricky one. So all those businesses, iron ore, alumina, um, cement, and malt, these are as much logistical businesses as they are manufacturing or mining ones. And, and you have to have integrated logistics to make the economics work. And can you can they not? Does barley need very specific growing conditions? Can it not grow in Asia? Is that why they import it from here? I'm not sure why, but for some reason, um, 
the the barley market is rather um, the barley market sounds like a tourism ad, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, it? It is it is rather concentrated. About forty percent of all um, malt barley is grown in Europe, and then you have big chunks grown in Canada, North America, and Australia. And some in the UK as well. Sounding and very temperate, isn't it? Sounding not not the sort of. It's thing sounding that, like it, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure what the agricultural conditions are like, but it's certainly only a handful of places that grow it in very large volume, um, and that's why processing facilities are built near um, growers, and then also near end user markets. And it's no yeah, yeah where they drink North a lot America. of beer. I guess well, is yes. the other point. Yeah, Europe yeah. and North America are two um, huge markets for for end beer consumption. Um, I was amazed thing... by sorry. I was just going to say I no, was amazed ahead. in your yeah. article. You said that Budweiser had substituted yeah. malt for for rice. Yeah, not entirely. A third a third of their um, of, of their uh, origination comes from um, rice instead of malt. For for most beers, traditionally, a hundred percent of your initial fermentation ingredient comes from malt. Um, but all the big beers, in fact, all the big big label beers, they've um, substituted malt for other things over time, um, partly because malt is harder to get access to, and I'm sure rice is easy to get to. It's also cheaper, and it might be easier um, uh, transporting and, and things like that. Uh, perhaps it keeps better. I'm, I'm not sure, but it's happened across the industry. Um, well, I think rice, also... sugar, and um, there's one other key substitute which I've completely forgotten. But there's yeah, it happens all Pops. around. No, no, hops. Hops is you add it at the end to All add right. a bit of bite. Oh, yeah. I see. Um, I, I, I did a bit of reading after reading your article and <laughs> about temperatures for serving beer. Anyway, it was saying that the very cold, the beers that you serve very cold, basically yeah. it hides the taste. Um, oh. And so the beers, the sort of mass market beers like Budweiser, which tend to be served very, very cold, perhaps, yeah. you know, you can get away with it, but the sort of uh, more flavoursome, sort of warmer beers that you might serve, perhaps you can't. That's... Yeah, okay, that sounds That's sounds correct theory. to me. I didn't realize that, but yeah, that sounds sounds right to me. Apparently, the yeah. more crafty sort of beers, the the, mm. the tastier types, you need to serve them a bit warmer because you serve them too cold, you can't can't taste it. It's a bit but, like, but there are some beers that you want to serve cold because they don't taste too good. <laughs> you guys ever had um, tomatoes out of the fridge? They taste terrible. It's the yeah, same sort no, of thing. You true. have to eat tomatoes at room temperature, yeah, otherwise it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mind a uh, tomato with a bit of pepper on it. You just you just take a slice off just for the oh, yeah. listeners at home if you if you got one sitting around. <laughs> you need salt as well. I'll add to that. You got you got to put some salt, some pepper, and then a little bit of um, balsam on it. I think is the way to do it. Jeez, Nicky, get it get it right. Get, getting a bit fancy now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're getting a bit off the topic here, boys. <laughs> so malt, <All> right. malt. <laughs> yes, back to malt. Um, so what I found quite intriguing about this business was that. I a that the the size of this independent malt market is quite large and universal. So most beer producers will require an in a third party source of malt, um, and because um, logistics is such a large part of the economics of the of the industry, it does tend to be dominated by a few large players. And you know, if you are one of those dominant players, the returns here actually look reasonably good. I think there is no reason why this should not be a higher than average quality business. And I'm not sure the market is pricing it as such at the moment. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is that we don't really have very good um, financial history on the malt business. Um, and it's not obvious just looking through the numbers that it is all that wonderful. Um, but, but I think um, as you get specialist management um, in there and 
uh, you get people, you get more access to capital, um, and um, more um, a more a better reporting history. Um, it will become clear that this is actually a pretty good business. I should point out that there's no other listed maltster in the world, so a lot of the economics of, of the industry are, are quite hidden, and it's quite hard to get um, financial data about how much these businesses ought to return. And um, over the last few years, um, because a few numbers, uh, there was two or three years of prior data uh, reported along with the IPO, um, that is, I think, a very misleading um, indication of the ultimate profitability of UMG because Grain Corp itself had no money to invest in the business and they weren't really focused on it. Um, So I I think we want to keep an eye out on the results um, over the next little period here and, and I think we'll over time we'll see that UMG actually is capable of, of better than average returns I think the other interesting thing about it is uh, as well and one other reason the opportunity might might be hidden a little bit is that you know it looks like a commodity producer but I, I don't yes. think it is um, it's mm. it's actually providing um, you know like I think you mentioned in your article pretty valuable ingredient and uh, and it's got a distinctive ingredient it has to be prepared in a certain way and potentially changing flavors as well. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And it's almost a service as well, which is the point you were making earlier about, you know, distribution and logistics being key. So that, you know, Mm. it's almost, you know, it's a, it's a relatively small cost uh, to the beer producers, but they need, they need it and they need it to be right. And, you know, and so you're almost providing them with a service, I think. Yeah. That's a good way to think about it as well. Um, yeah, I agree. I agree with both those points. Particularly, and why would you change the service as well? I mean, if it if it's such a small percentage of the cost, like yeah, yeah. I mean, if it's going right and it tastes right and all that. Um, I mean, unless you're Budweiser, I suppose shaving half a percent off your your cost for Budweiser makes a big difference. So, mm. um, I think this the, focus on the the craft sector for United Malt in particular is really important. It's a it's a important differentiator, and it is um, a, a source of um, super profits for them. Um, so do we because, know what portion of sales go, go to that? Yeah, there's a third of, of sales uh, that go to the okay. craft sector at the moment. Um, uh, it's actually uh, larger than the portion of sales that goes to huge international brewers. So independent, it's, it's actually the largest segment inside UMG, and but it's also growing pretty quickly. The thing is, it takes a lot of capital to grow because you have to build out really deep distribution networks to get malt to tiny little craft brewers. But once you've locked those um, brewers in, as Mickey says, it's quite unlikely that they'll ever change a supplier. And you can actually ride the success of your customers quite a bit because you're, you're constantly using um, malt and it's unlikely they're going to change um, supplier because of the specific cake, um, taste characteristics that they're trying to establish as a brand. Well, and so building out that distribution network has to provide a barrier barrier to entry as well. In, indeed, yeah, and, and they're doing they're that just, at the moment as well. They're just they're just weak customers as well. They're just small customers, and you're a big supplier, and you can just tell them what the price is, and they can't exactly just they can't negotiate with you. Um, yeah, there are so. downsides as well in that when you supply a big customer, so um, UMG supplies Fosters in Australia, and and that's their largest customer in Australia. The revenue is it's certainly lower margin, um, and you're dealing with an enormous. I think Fosters is now owned by InBev, which is you know I think it's a hundred billion dollar. It's a huge business internationally. It's the world's biggest beer business, um, and 
they don't they can dictate pricing a lot um, but they do can take they also take um, consistent quantities and they actually take the commodity risk on their own um, balance sheet so for a lot of their sales especially to the larger brewers um, UMG is actually a toll manufacturer so it actually just takes a margin on the, on the stuff that it processes and it doesn't have to take any raw ingredient or any um, end ingredient as price risk. Does that make make sense? They just take a tolling yeah. fee on the volume that they're processing, and the volumes are quite fixed over three to five years. Yeah. So it's it's a quite an attractive, um, resilient business in that sense. And then you've got the additional margin and growth coming from the craft sector. So you, it's a good combination of resilience and growth. Um, and and I actually quite like uh, the comp company. So why didn't we upgrade it? I guess is the next question. Um, it's because two things for me. One was that there's just a limited financial history to work with. And I just wasn't, I, I think we can be patient with, with these stocks. It's, it's, it's only been listed for a couple of months. It's never reported as an independent entity. There's no competitor we can check financial results for either. So I, I just think it's unnecessary to take on the additional risk. Um, of of buying now, even though I think the price now is actually reasonably okay, and I think it makes some sense to take a small nibble at it now, just to establish a beachhead, and you can keep an eye on the results. And as we get a clearer picture of what the economics of this business look like, and in particular, I'm very interested to know how the cash flow dynamics work because it's been a relatively poor producer of cash flow, even though the model should actually generate lots of cash flow. So I want to check that as well. Once we have a bit more confidence about the actual results, I think um, I think I'd be more comfortable upgrading the company. Tr- trouble is, of course, that the price is like you know if they put out a few decent results, then the price is likely to be higher yeah. as well. So I suppose the answer is one's trading a little bit of risk for a slightly higher price, yes. and sometimes that's yes. uh, a, a smart thing to do. I don't um, even. I, I would see... also be slightly nervous about. Yep craft beers in terms yes. of their growth um that's, yes. i suspect that's somewhat cyclical I, I think in a recession uh people are gonna you know get the cheap stuff probably yeah this is a good point mm-hmm. to bring up as well jc um the craft craft the craft sector has been decimated by the pandemic um even though the big end of uh, of beer production is actually quite stable i think they've actually grown market share a little bit that craft sector tends to make a lot of sales on premise so in pubs and clubs and hotels and with all those things closed down around the world, um, craft sales have disappeared. And these little brewers do not have the financial resilience to, to stay in business for very long. So there's mm. a, there is a risk that a lot of this craft sector could be severely impacted depending on the length of lockdowns. Um, so, and, and we want to be, you know, be mindful of that as well. Um, and, and you're also correct. I think there's a bit more, certainly more cyclicality. Um, in that craft beer sector, because the pricing of craft beer is significantly higher. Interesting one to watch, though. Anyway, I think that's... yeah, and it's a, it's great yeah. to have such a such an interesting business um, listed on the ASX. It was wasted, hidden away within Grain Corp, which I think is a lousy business by itself. And I'm thrilled that it's now um, listed and on our um, coverage list. Thrilled. Thrilled. You know why? Yeah. You know what I see coming. You know what's coming up. We're going to be taking a beer tour, surely. That's the next step. Why well, you can do it without me? <laughs> oh, yes. Just, poor JC. Be yeah. And then we'll go get a steak as well, just to really. <laughs> there's a there's a business I've been um, I've been talking to Nate about called Experience Co, which is a skydiving business. 
You can do that without um, me as well. Wow, well, was, it's a bit small <laughs> for us to cover, actually, which is the problem. But um, but there's some interesting stuff going on there as well. But that would be that would make a great combination. You've got you've got your beer research and then your research of jumping out of a plane at, at high altitude. Both at the same time. Both at the same time. Yep, yep. The life of an analyst. So. Crikey. <laughs> Um, right, let's leave um, UMG there, Mickey. We've got some. Uh, we've got a really interesting activity happening in the telco sector. Tell us uh, what has happened uh, with Opticom. If I'm, if that was too cryptic. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that wasn't too cryptic. Uh, so Opticom has received the takeover offer from Unity Wireless. Uh, so it's uh, so Opticom just, was a, a, a can buyer. You, yeah, can you just remind us what uh, Opticom um, does? Yeah, so Opticom uh, provides last mile uh, fiber networks. So basically, these are for primarily for newer states, uh, and so it'll make an agreement with a uh, property developer who's building a newer state to come in and actually put in the fiber to the premises in these estates. Uh, those developers can choose. Generally, it's only NBN or Opticom, who are the two largest to do it, uh, and so. Uh, yeah, so and basically from there, once it's built those networks, it, it leases out those networks to internet service providers, uh, and it uh, you know collects a, uh, a monthly uh, fee, user fee, and uh, and so those those fees grow in proportion to its network. Uh, and Unity uh, is a business that we've also covered, and Agora uh, have covered that. Um, pretty recently, and 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 they do a similar thing, but it's it's primarily focused on big apartment blocks, and uh, so Unity coming in now uh, to purchase this business um, will create will basically merge the um, second, third, and fourth uh, largest private net private networks, and uh, you'll get um, Opticom's experience kind of in the uh, broad acre new estate uh, market, and and you'll merge that with uh, the apartment um, market share, I guess, that Unity has already developed by buying these other businesses. So, It's a really attractive um, business, actually, this private fiber, because what happens is that uh, they, they build, because the NBN, the boundaries of NBN are largely established. When there's new estates, um, the government mandates they have to have fiber in them and someone has to go and build it. So NBN can bid for the build, but so can private operators. And and Opticom and uh, Unity has been, have been the, the biggest competitors to NBN. So they get paid for building the network in the first place. And once it's built, it's a monopoly asset. And then they can they collect um, wonderful um, high margin annuity fees every time someone connects to the internet. So it's it's a really nice business with a long runway of, of, of revenue. Um, so it's well, it depends making... on the it depends on the. Um on the type of development, I guess, because new estates are mostly monopolies because um, to actually put in new infrastructure, oh, you've got to, you've got to rip up like, you know, streets and stuff. Yeah. Um, whereas apartment blocks, it's a lot easier to get another provider in there. Mm, uh, so I think, I think this, this, the, the merged entity is actually probably going to be of lower quality than say Opticom, um, mm. but it will probably make Unity a better business as well. Uh, and you'll get like those scale benefits, you know, they'll be able to share networks. Uh, and I think just having a larger network should mean that they can attract one of the, one of the detractors from, for a developer looking to get Opticom in, it's been that they haven't been able to get Optus or Telstra to use their network. And so now with this increased scale and more users available, that should help attract um, 
of this Intel shop. And so that should just make, uh, you know, um, this, this network more attractive, um, overall. Yep. So, uh, yeah, there are definitely some, you know, good, good reasons. It's pretty disappointing. I would, I, I, from my perspective, because I thought, you know, Opticom is really well placed and I was hoping to hold on to it for a really long time. Uh, so, uh, it seems like it's, it's finished way too early. I mean, the business listed only last year and, uh, it's only at a small premium to Friday's close. So, uh, yeah, it's a little bit disappointing from, from my perspective, but. And when we, we, we upgraded it, when, when, did, when was that? Was that before, that was before the pandemic. So we're getting a side improvement on that price, but after the pandemic. Well, we got, I think it's from, from our price, it's, um, it's up about 30% or something from there now. So. Uh, so the, it, it held up pretty well throughout the pandemic because it was never really going to be all that affected. The, mm. the main the main issue from the pandemic is just the effect that that will have on the housing market, and that's going to slow down new developments. And so Opticom is kind of comes in right at the very end of the cycle because uh, it's basically the last thing you put into a development, and uh, so there will be a lag. But you'd think that. You know. So growth could have been affected a few years out, but not not in the immediate future as well. Yeah, I think no, I think I think growth will will be affected. Uh, you know, because uh, depending on, yeah, I think I think growth is is probably. Go- I mean, um, and and also, uh, you've got this new. There's been a broadband um, tax, regional broadband tax that's been implemented. So I'm not sure if this is part of the motives for the insiders kind of selling out now, but they've. You know, earnings are probably likely to, you know, stay pretty flat for the next year or two, and maybe they just saw the opportunity to, to get out and out, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, I actually had a buy order sitting in for Opticom, um above our own recommended buy, I might add, because it was just very hard. It's a, it's pretty tightly held, and I found it quite hard to get stock. Um, we held it in the portfolios as as well, um, Mickey, I believe. Uh, no, we we never we never bought it for the portfolio. Yeah, it was probably because um, yeah, it was very hard to get stock. Is, is my guess. Um, yeah, but I'm surprised that management, who owned a big chunk of Opticom, has decided to sell at such a modest price. Does it does that worry you at all? Does it signal that there might be difficulties in the business? Yeah, it does worry me. I think, I think uh, you know you've got to look at it like any other big sale of stock by management because. Like there's a script component to this offer, but we don't know if management's going to be taking up that option personally. And and the script is only 20% of the total offer. So you think, you know, at least you're looking at 80% sell down for the insiders here. And that comes after the IPO and comes after a couple of sales in between. So, you know, this is basically them getting out of the business and walking away from it. Um, they may stay within the business, but by and large, they'll be selling down a, a big portion of their holding. And so I wonder if there's something maybe that they're worried about. And, you know, so you look at, you know, the bush tax, you look at the virus and how that's affecting potentially new developments. There's also this review going on in telecommunications, which is, um, which could allow NBN more flexibility on pricing and, and actually building over other networks. And so that could, that has a potential potentially to kind of unleash the NBN, make them a stronger competitor as well. Uh, so I'm wondering if they're just looking out at all these things and they're going, you know, now's a decent price, decent time. Uh, you know, they've been in this business for 15 years. So, um, but I still, 
I still, for, for, for me personally, I would have preferred to probably hold on for a bit longer, but mm. I don't know. So I guess the only other question is if someone else comes in and makes a higher bid, but I don't know. Well, if they don't, that also tells you something, doesn't it? If we think it's a very low price, yet the insiders are going for it and no one else wants to pay more, then... Mm, indeed. You know? And yeah. Unity, so, I must say... Go with me, Kim. Oh, well, yeah. So I guess that, that makes it interesting, uh, you know, in terms of Unity because they've, you know, they've, they've bought this business now and, you know, maybe they're... Well, I mean, you, you probably have a better idea, but I guess they've, 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 you know, sold the market on this high growth roll-up story and if they're not going to get much earnings growth out of this business for the next year or two then uh you know that could potentially be um disappointing i guess unity worries me a lot there's red flags all over this um i don't like the way um management are being hailed as mna gods you know i think that's really dangerous every time you get a lot of growth from um mna and the market starts pricing in your skill as a corporate operator that's historically ended in disaster. Um, and that seems to be the case here. Uh, so Unity was already being priced at a similar level to Opticom, even though it was heaps smaller and nowhere near as high quality. And and to me, that signals that the market was behind the two fellows running um, Unity who had this very grand M&A strategy of, of um, growing by acquiring lots of other businesses. And they've certainly delivered on that. But you look at the acquisition record, and it is not terrific. You know, they started off doing fixed wireless, which is a, I'd argue, a poor quality dying business anyway. But as they try to expand in that area, they couldn't get deals done. Um, and then they went off and bought a whole heap of unrelated niche businesses that have nothing to do with anything, really. Um, and they can't really grow. Uh, and then they, then after that, they stumbled across um, uh, this private fiber network. And, and now they've bought Opticom. It just seems to be a very, their, their key determinant of an acquisition target seems to be just size. You know, I think their objective here is just to get big. It doesn't seem to me that there's all that much thought gone into what kind of business they're trying to build. Um, they just want to get big and they want to get big fast. And that's what... Um, and then probably they want to be taken over, don't they? Is and they want to be taken over is also yeah. my guess. You're correct. Yeah, Because yeah. that, so that's the playbook of Make Warren it Bowen. easy for someone else to, to buy up a lot of fibre in one go. Yep. So Vaughan Bowen was the founder and MD of, um, of M2, which was rolled into Vocus. And he gets a lot of kudos from M2. And we were investors in M2 and we did very well out of it. But look, you have to say, M2 was no great business. Um, he bought customers, paid a lot for them. And then, um, you know, it was... was either lucky or skillful enough to sell them to, to to someone else who's now really struggled with it. These haven't been, this hasn't been a business that's actually performed well over time. So I'd say that the management is getting a lot of credit for something they have not yet generated a track record before yet. Um, so I'm quite skeptical of, of Unity. And you look through their presentation and the rationale, the key rationale given is to get bigger. You know, we're going to be a billion dollar business. We're going to go to the index and fund managers are going to have a look at us. Yeah, yeah, I agree these guys, with that. Yeah. These guys are interested in getting the share price up. They're not interested in building a business. And I saw it as well. The The other thing in one of their presentations was they were they were talking about free cash flow. So they've got this free cash flow number. And then yeah. kind of the asterisk is it says uh, free cash flow is EBITDA less CapEx. And so, you know, that totally ignores, you know, interest, tax 
unbelievable. Uh, which yeah. is not which is not free cash flow. Um, not to mention that EBITDA is not cash flow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's uh, yeah, it seemed like a bit of a stretch, really. Yeah, which is a real shame because I yeah, as I said, I really liked Opticom, um, and yeah, to see it rolled into here uh, is a disappointment. And I you know I, 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 we're not going to well, I can say now we're not going to recommend Unity. It has to get um, a lot cheaper because I think it's being um, there's a bit of mania around this business now, and I, d- I don't think it's deserved. Uh, well, so we've got the Opticom article coming out shortly, so any interested members can read that. Which brings us to JC um, Iris, which I must yes. admit, um, I've I've always heard it's a great quality business. It's this um, technology stalwart that's, you know, there was a, a hot tech stock before there were any other hot tech stocks. I don't know very much about this company at all, even though we've covered it extensively. And I think we've recommended it in the past. Is it as good as its reputation would lead you to believe? Well, it's it's funny. I've not I've never heard that uh reputation maybe you came at it a little bit before me but while it was still a hot tech stock i've been sort of loosely watching it since about 2012 i suppose and Mm. by that stage it was already sort of falling off its perch a little bit i think oh i see okay um so look i mean it 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 is a very high quality business i think um for various reasons um but it's in a difficult area um, and it's not really growing very much. So those are the the things that. I, um, so it, it started off in the '90s, um, making a, a financial markets um, software product, which we use um, at uh, Intelligent Investor, and uh, which is become almost ubiquitous across the industry. Um, huge, huge market share for providing you know market information, just sort of in a niche. Uh, below Bloomberg, but but more sort of finely tuned towards um, below Bloomberg in, in terms of price point, but but more finely tuned towards the Australian market. Hmm. Um, there's a trading system in there as well, and so um, and that came from very little, you know, it came from nothing in the early '90s um, to uh, being you know uh, ubiquitous by um, sort of the mid 2000s, um, which is so so certainly if you if you Bought in, I mean, it five bagged from the um, 2000 float uh, to 2007. So mm, wow. certainly it was a hot stock back then. I mean, it did brilliantly well. Um, it was high margin, you know, earnings, I, I think up to 60% in the um, uh, margins mm. in the um, in the financial markets software business. Um, the trouble is that it became a victim of its own success. So it, 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 it once you once you sort of take your market, then it's it's hard to get growth, and particularly in the financial markets business, where um, you know the big uh, players have been consolidating and uh, reducing staff numbers. There's been pressure on fees and all that sort of thing um, for fund managers. So um, and brokers have been under pressure. So. You know, it, it's it's in a it's it's a great business, but in a difficult um, uh, industry with and and it has very little limited growth prospects. Um, plus, the margins been coming down on that business um, over the years, um, so profits have actually gone backwards. Um, so, in two thousand and three, it bought another really really good business, which is Xplan, um, which makes software for financial planners. Um, is that in the UK? 
Uh, no, that, but that's in Australia. Okay, right. Um, uh, although they've taken it into the UK subsequently, but but uh, that was that was that was in Australia back then. But they um, and that's done something similar to uh, um, to the financial markets business, which is it's grown um, and become a victim of its own success. So it now has over fifty percent market share, uh, um, and it, it's now sort of fully exposed to the um, to the problems that the financial planning industry uh, is facing, um, you know, with with planners leaving the industry and all that sort of thing, and so um, begs the question: Can you have a quality business um, uh, which isn't growing? And the answer to that is obviously yes, as long as it's mm. producing cash and you're not paying too much for it. So, mm. but you know, Iris was sort of always priced for growth; it had got used to growth. Yeah. Um and shareholders rather expected that I suspect. Um and so where do you go? Um and so they went overseas. So they mm. um they started uh businesses in South Africa and Canada um and uh bought a big financial planning software business in the UK in 2014 called Avello which they're trying to sort of uh they're trying to shift the customers over to X plan. Um, but it's been, that's been pretty slow going. I think 27% now of UK revenue is, is, uh, is X plan. That's six years later. So, you know, it's as the contracts sort of renew, they try to sort of shift people over. Um, and these are, these are sort of lower margin businesses. Um, and they're, you know, I think they're not as good as the, the core, um, and yet they've pretty much provided all the growth for the last 10 years. So without um, uh, without those acquisitions, EBITDA mm. would have barely moved um, mm. uh, over the last um, uh, 10 years. And even with the acquisitions, because of the dilution from the share issues to pay for them, um, earnings per share, I think, has increased from 35 cents to 41 cents. So it's pretty... Um, modest growth slow yeah. moving now yeah. that might yeah. be okay except mm. for the fact that the current PE is about 28 mm. um, which is uh, the sort of multiple you put on a on a growth stock although 30 is the new 20 now isn't it yeah I guess it is <laughs> and um, you know that 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 would be okay if you were growing a bit I mean the um, you know there's a justification for high multiples for growth stocks um uh, because of low interest rates and all that, but that presupposes that you are growing, um, which which the, they're not significant. You know, it's a percent or two a year. Um, and, do you think uh, there's a, and there are risks as well? Do you think there's a difficulty when a formerly high growth business suddenly finds itself without growth? Growth um, culturally is that? Do you reckon that's quite hard to adapt to? Well, I, yeah, I think that's right, um, and I think it's an it's an interesting. So, I suppose it's a question of whether your product, whether demand for your product is growing, hmm. or whether you're just taking market share. And you know, if you've got a static market and you just come up with a great new product for it, then you run into trouble when you take that market. Um, the the you know the 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 better growth story is one where the the market itself is actually growing and there's room hmm. for everyone. Um, and I suppose that's what makes the industry a bit of a tough one. I find it interesting, though, with these businesses. I think, like, class is kind of a similar one, these software businesses, where they're 
you know, the addressable market's quite small and quite well defined and that can actually make them harder to compete with but it also just means the upsides maybe less and um well because you know it would be so hard for somebody else to come into say iris's markets and try to compete with them wouldn't it well um, yes it would except that um you know ultimately i mean the chances of of that happening are probably greater than them suddenly finding a whole new other market. If you see what I mean, so the the risks start to be on the downside. If you're the, you know, I mean, someone could come up with a new software product which just does everything much better. It's not not certainly not impossible. Um, that's what they do. So um, you know, you couldn't rule that out. Um, but the chances, you know, but but the, the the limited growth means the as you say the upside is more limited. So mm. you you got to be careful of paying those high multiples. Yeah, I mean it produces good cash. It's, it's I should say it's it, there's a lot to like the management. Um, we like the management. The guy running it, Andrew Walsh. He he's still um, uh, he's the guy who he, he co-founded X Plan back in the day. So he's mm. um, you know knows how how to start and run a business. Um, and uh, you know. It, generates plenty of cash it, it's it's an it's a nice business but it's priced very high for for something which isn't growing much so jc if the legacy business is actually quite decent then i assume that there's a price for which you'd be quite happy to uh to pay um when would you consider uh upgrading this one well i think it's the sort of uh thing you might pay around 20 times for that sort of thing i mean that's a uh you know a fairly um low multiple when it all when all the earnings are coming through in cash and it's not growing much um we we paid 24 times for it when we uh upgrade so we upgraded this back in 2010 um so it's been sitting there for 10 years um and uh you know we've basically performed in line with the market in 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 that time of seven percent total return um, but that's been helped by the by the multiple going from 24 up to 28. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, I think you'd want to buy it on a much lower multiple. So I mean, yeah, it's certainly one we'd reconsider. But for the, uh, there's no obvious sign of that happening at the moment. Yeah, so, no, it's hard, uh, it's not hard to imagine covering. a business like this going for 20 times, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. All right, um, gents. Anything else we need to add, or should we wrap up? Silence? Okay. <laughs> Enjoy your tomatoes, everybody. Done and done. Oh, I'm going to go do some now. Actually. <laughs> you reminded me. Yeah, tomatoes and malted beer. Just what the just what was called for. Skydiving. And maybe a bit of skydiving. Well, um, Mickey, thanks very much for your time today. Thanks, Gaurav. Thanks, James. JC, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. And for everyone else, thank you for listening. <laughs>